button. There we go. That study is entitled Doing Right Regardless. Regardless of what others would do. When we think about this particular topic, by way of introduction, well, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Totally a blank slide. That's where the fun starts. Yeah. Let's try this again. Maybe I started from the end. <laughs> Does it? Okay. Well, I'll see it, but you won't. See if it shows the rest of it. Okay. Well, let's just do a quick reformatting. You can see it there? That's going to be weird. I know. And I work so hard on these wonderful animations. Uh, let me see if I can uh, view Master and get it. Uh, so when you had this, what solves the problem? Let's, we don't know. Oh, you don't know? Okay. So if I solve it, let's see if it likes. It may not like that color. Let's see if that works. Yeah, that worked marvelously. <clears throat> well, of the slides that you see available to you, <clears throat> we'll start with um, the front. The front <laughs> this one. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. By way of introduction, let me suggest to you that when we do what is right... Others may be influenced also to do what's right. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. You might could zoom in a little bit more on the bottom too. I haven't given up yet. I'm going to... This may really foul it up if I go to a different uh, template. But if I go to a different color and go to grayscale, let's see if that works. It just doesn't like that template, does it? Oops. Oh, sorry. Give me just a Let's see, what's a good one that might work? Let me view this, go to that. I'd say this is a unique problem. Slide matcher themes is what I want. Um, that's a pretty generic thing. Maybe. See if that works. 
It won't be very pretty, but maybe it'll be effective. So, it'll be very pretty, but you can see it. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. In our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, he tells those, he said, that you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, by virtue of their works and by virtue of their life, by virtue of their influence, their, uh, their good deeds may have an impact and an influence on others. And by virtue of them being alive, others might be led to glorify God just by virtue of them being a light to the world. Think about Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12 and verses 20 and 21, at the end of that chapter, Paul says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so there are times in which, as we do that which is good, in essence, we have an influence to the point where we heap coals of fire upon our enemies to the point that they desire to change. They desire to alter their life by virtue of how we have been in their presence. However, there's no guarantee that our doing what is right is always going to cause others to do right also. Good behavior and deeds may bring about a change in those who slander you. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now this verse looks a lot like Matthew 5, doesn't it? In that... If you are the light of the world, that your light may have an impact upon people to the point that it leads them to glorify God. But there's a difference in this passage. Because notice that he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may. There's no guarantee that this is how it's going to wind up. You keep your behavior excellent, you do the things that you need to do in the face of them slandering you and you keeping your behavior excellent, it may have an impact and it may lead them to glorify God as a result of your good deeds. Go to the next chapter, First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So here's a situation where a woman is married to a man and he is disobedient to the word, Peter tells us. And so Peter says, here's how you need to act. You need to have chaste and respectful behavior. That needs to be the way that you interact with your husband. And if you do that, they may be won by the behavior. But may is in both of those passages. 
And so while that is the goal that we are hoping for and that Jesus said is possible and, and that even Peter says that is possible, but here's the question. How should I act when my righteous behavior has no impact upon the unrighteous behavior of others? It's easy for me to see that when as I'm doing good and as I'm striving to that the, the wife is trying to be respectful and chaste, it's easy to see that that defensive wall of her husband is slowly being eroded away and, you, and she can see I'm having an impact. Or maybe as you're around your co-workers and as you're around your family or as you're around your neighbor, whoever it might be, those who aren't Christians, those who aren't children of God, and as you let your light shine, you can see that slowly they're coming around and they're asking questions and they're inquisitive. And you can see that you're having an impact. And so that, that's encouraging. You can see I'm, something's happening here. But this is the question for us tonight. Isn't that situation? The question for us is, well, what happens when it's having no impact? What about that wife as she continues to be respectful and chaste year after year after year after year, and there is no foreseeable impact upon her husband, what does she do? What about that individual who has let his light shine for years and years, who has kept his behavior excellent for years and years, and yet those that he has been trying to influence, it has had no impact upon them. And so what does he do then? What kind of action... Should he take then? Well, you can kind of see that. I want you to notice that I'm still obligated to do what is right, even if others don't. My obligation to do what is right has never been and will never be based upon the reaction that I receive from others. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 a little bit later in that chapter that we just read a minute ago. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I want to suggest to you that we have a difficulty associating ourselves with that passage. Because, let me ask you, who's your enemy? You got an enemy in your life? Who's persecuting you? For most of us living in the nation that we live in, we don't have an enemy. I don't have a a person that is physically, actually persecuting me. And so we we have a hard time, I think at times, kind of associating ourselves with this passage. But I want you to imagine just for a moment, what if you had an enemy and their sole purpose in life was to destroy you, was to fight you at every turn, was to attempt to ruin your reputation, was to attempt to ruin you financially, if their whole life was about ruining you, what would be your reaction to them? How should you treat them? Well, Jesus says you should love them. What about someone that literally was persecuting you, turning you into the authorities, causing all kinds of issues for you? 
what does Jesus say you should do for that one? Pray for that one. That's, that's a difficult concept for us to grasp because I tell you in America, and it has become more, it has become worse and worse. If somebody looks at me wrong, I get offended in our society today. If someone just says a one small unkind thing, or someone dare to not use their turning signal, or someone stops in front of me or pulls out in front of me, boy, I just I am just livid. What happens if someone really had it out for me personally? What would be my reaction? What Jesus has told us. And then he challenges us in verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Is the level of kindness that we have to others directly dependent upon the recipient of the kindness that we're extending. That's sad if that's the case because that's the very thing that Jesus says, you're no better than the tax collectors, you're no better than the sinners. There's got to be something different. How that in spite of the way that I am treated, I still act righteously. I still do what is right. Look in Romans chapter 12. It's going to sound like we're still in Matthew. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm still obligated to do what is right, even if others do not. So that's the principle that we have established for us. But where do we apply this principle? The Bible has actually given us two places, at least in the New Testament era, where this was applied. And one of those places is doing right regardless within the marriage relationship. Turn to Hebrew, or Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33. The point of Paul's passage here, or this section from 25 to 33, even though we use it a lot, what we, what we are really using is we're really using the illustration of the point that Paul is making. The illustration is the marriage relationship. The point that Paul is making is the relationship of Christ to his church and the church to, to the Lord. And the best way that he can illustrate that is by the husband and wife relationship. But by virtue of that being the illustration, it it lays down for us some principles of what should the husband and wife relationship look like. It, It helps us to see how that relationship should be. 
And he sums it up, and the, the best probably summation of that is found in verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now I want you to go to Proverbs chapter 21. In Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 19, it is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Well, surely God doesn't mean for me to to love a contentious and vexing woman. Is there anything in the context in Ephesians chapter 5 that says that my love for my wife is directly proportionate to the lovingness of her character. (laughs) Nothing in that passage, is there? In fact, we would know that that wouldn't be consistent because if we're to love our enemies, they're certainly not doing anything toward us that has made them be loving, that has caused within us the desire to love them. They're not being loving toward us, and yet I'm supposed to be loving toward them. They're not praying for me, and yet I'm supposed to be praying for them. And so why would we come to the marriage relationship and assume that it's any different? Husbands are commanded to love their wives. And even if she is a contentious and vexing woman, that does not excuse the husband of his responsibility to love his wife. Think about it from the standpoint of wives commanded to respect her husband. How difficult would that be for the woman that we've already read about in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 1 through 2? Because how is her husband described? Disobedient. And yet what is her action toward him? Respectful. The very thing that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33, wives respect your husbands. Husbands must love their wives even if she may be the kind of woman described in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 19. And wives must show respect to their husband even if their husband is disobedient. That's going to be hard, isn't it? It's one thing to say, well, she is just so lovely and so loving and so considerate and so sensitive and so wonderful. Well, yeah, it's easy to love those who are worthy of love. But God has called us to love the unlovable. And in fact, you remember in Matthew chapter 5, when we learn how to learn how to love the unlovable, we have become what? Sons of of God. Why? Because we've learned the character of God. We look like our Heavenly Father. Because from Romans chapter 5, what do we learn about what God did? God loved us even when we were what? Enemies. So when God loved us as His enemies, God set the pattern And so when I love my enemies and when I love those who are not acting in a way that are that's deserving of my love, when I do what should be done because that's the right thing to do, then Jesus said, you look like your father. You look like your father because you're acting like your father. That's the idea of a son of 
it, you, you have taken on the character and the nature of your Father. And we do that when we love in spite of the fact and we act in spite of the fact that others are not responding to us as they should. There's another relationship that's described in God's Word wherein this is talked about, and that is the master-slave relationship. In Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 5, this was their, uh, a common thing in, in their society. That's different, and, and it always becomes an issue. Uh, we, we think about the, mat, the matter of slavery in our nation. It, it, slavery at, at this time looked very different. Most of the time, they were indentured slaves. Someone had a debt that they owed, and they couldn't pay that debt. And so they said, well, I'll work that debt off. I'll be your slave. I'll be your slave, and I'll work for you for free till I work this debt off. That's why you see in the parable of the unforgiving servant. Because here's a man who has a debt he's never going to forgive. He's never going to be able to work off. It's an impossible debt. And yet even though he's never going to be able to work it off, what does the master do? I'm going to go ahead and forgive you. I'm, I'm just going to forgive you that debt because you're never going to be able to work that off. The incredible love of that, which is parallel to the love of God for us. And so the master and slave relationship in, in this in this society was, was more along the lines of slaves who had a debt to their masters and they were attempting to, to work that off. But even though that was the case, that didn't mean that the slaves always acted as they should and the masters always acted as they should. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22 Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then in Titus chapter 2, in verse 9, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. That sounds good, doesn't it? Unfortunately, when we go over to the book of Peter, and we look in 1 Peter chapter 18, it looks along the same lines of what we've already read, doesn't it? Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. That sounds a lot like what we just read. Notice what Peter adds. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. The word unreasonable comes from the Greek word skolios. Now that ought to sound familiar, doesn't it? We probably all know individuals who have a condition called scoliosis, a curvature of the spine. I've got a niece that has that condition. And sure enough, that's exactly what that word means. That word means crooked or bent or warped. Literally, it would mean like driftwood on, the, the, on, on a beach somewhere. Just crooked and gnarly looking. Well, think about that. If, that was, if you were to take that, that literal uh, picture and paint that as the character of someone, 
their character is that of the gnarly, crooked driftwood on the beach. You would have perversity and injustice. So here's a master who is crooked and bent and warped and perverse and unjust and expecting the impossible. And what does Peter say? Well, you ought to run away from that guy. That's not what Peter said. Peter said, you obey your masters with all respect. Oh, I will, because he's good and gentle. Peter said, I know that. But you should also obey those who are unreasonable. How difficult would that be? To obey that master. Go to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. I'm sorry, I read the wrong one. Colossians 4 and verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So you need to be just and you need to be fair and you don't need to be one who is threatening. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9, I didn't get that one read. So you need to, this is how you need to act toward your slaves. Even those who, he says in Titus chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10... We've read about the bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. That idea of pilfering is only used three times in the New Testament. The word literally means to take to yourself. We would have the word embezzle. Three times that it's used in the New Testament, it's used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's used in in the Old Testament in reference to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, when the children of Israel were to be taking over the land of of, uh, Canaan, they get to Jericho. And you remember that with Jericho, everything was under the ban. But someone took... What was under the ban? They took for themselves what did not belong. They embezzled, if you will, the Lord's belongings. God has said, all of this is mine. Someone took it. It's used in Acts chapter 5 in reference to Ananias and Sapphira, who kept back, it said, a part of the purchase price. They embezzled, if you will. That's that word, to embezzle. So what if you've got a slave that is pilfering, that, that's robbing a little bit of, of your money, does that then mean that you don't that you can threaten that one and you don't have to be fair with him? You still got to act a certain way, don't you? How difficult is it to do right toward those doing you wrong? And maybe we don't associate with this, and it's hard for us to really put ourselves in this situation because maybe we've not really had this situation happen. We've not really been in that kind of a circumstance. Or maybe we've been in that kind of a circumstance, but we've justified our actions. 
and we fail to apply this principle. And we feel justified in our actions because, well, they, let me tell you, the moment that that comes out of your mouth or that, that thought hits your head, you have done the very thing that God said don't do. I don't act toward others on the basis of how they act toward me. I act toward others on the basis of how my Heavenly Father has told me I should act toward them regardless of what they do toward me. And that's a challenge. I want to read for you Luke chapter 6. We've read these other passages in Matthew chapter 5. But I like the way that Luke records this in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 32, Jesus is speaking, which probably tells us the fact that we've got it in Luke. We have it in Matthew, just like we have the Sermon on the Mount in a couple of different places. This is probably something that Jesus, a message that Jesus repeated more than once. But in Luke's recording of this, it says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, ulterior motive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Did you catch that? God is kind to those who won't turn and say thank you, Lord. God is kind to those. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, we are told that his kindness is what? He sends rain on the just and the unjust. We sometimes joke about that, don't we? We say, oh, that county got rain. I and mean, we didn't get any. Uh, I guess we're not living right. Well, that's a joke. And I hope you know that that's a joke because that is not the principle found in God's Word. The principle found in God's Word is He doesn't withhold rain from those who aren't worthy of that. He gives rain to the just and the unjust. If God equally blesses, regardless of whether or not they're going to turn and say, thank you, Lord, then I have to exam- follow His example in the same way. How do you do that? I mean, that, like, okay, well, you've told us it's hard, you've told us it's difficult, and you've given us a challenge, and are you going to send us out the door and say, well, good luck with that? No, I think the Bible tells us and gives us some things that's helpful. As is the case so often in so many things, it truly is a matter of focus. What am I focusing on? Let me suggest something to you. You don't need to be focusing on justice. And a lot of times that's where our focus is. And it's not that I am unsympathetic to your plight. And it's not that I don't believe that maybe you have had an evil done against you. Or maybe you have been the recipients of threats. Or maybe someone has wronged you. Or maybe you have been cheated. I'm not denying that you have a valid case. 
I'm not undermining that at all. I'm not questioning your credibility. When you say, but you don't know, they have done me wrong. I recognize that. But if that's where my focus always is, I'm going to have a difficult time treating them as my Heavenly Father would treat them. It is better to accept being wrong than to seek justice in an unscriptural way. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, I tell you, there's a good many of individuals, even in the Lord's church, would just assume that passage wasn't in Corinthians. Because in the society in which we live, we're in, if I don't get my way, or somebody wrongs me, or some, if through some um, kind of accident, I'm harmed in some way, Boy, I'm going to sue the pants off of you. That's our society. And you see this happening. I mean, we think we're the only society. Oh, no, they, they did that in Corinth too. But I want you to notice, and we don't have time to look at this whole passage, but in this passage, Paul is talking about the matter of lawsuits. Brethren going to law with brother because of some sort of, a, of an issue. And notice that Paul doesn't even... It seems as though Paul acknowledges there has been some fraud that's been committed here. But Paul says, look, you need to look at the bigger picture here. And that when you're doing this before the world, what kind of light is that showing toward the world? It actually would be better if you would accept the wrong. Look at verse 7. Rather than it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another, why not rather be wronged, why not rather be defrauded? Did you notice who is defeated in the passage? Everybody. You may have a case. You may have been wronged. And you may be able to take him to court and sue him and get what's yours. But Paul says, I'm telling you, you've already lost. You're defeated, even though you may win your case. Because there's a bigger picture here than just you getting what's yours. There's something that we need to remember that God has told us over and over again. That God is going to take care of the injustices. Don't worry about that. God's going to handle that. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing. What's the motivation for the master to stop threatening? Knowing that their master, oh, that's me. Paul says, no, I'm not talking about you. Their master and yours. Both of you had the same master. Their master and yours is in heaven. And there's no partiality with him. What's that imply? There's going to be some judgment from the master. Your master. Their master. He's going to have... If you're wronging them, he's not going to be partial. He's not going to say, oh, well, that's the master, that's the slave. Well, I better be partial to the master because he's the master and he's not the slave. Paul says, look, your master, their master is going to judge. And if you're not treating your slaves right, 
that master will not be partial. He will judge and vengeance will be afforded. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 25. For he, does, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Why is it that we keep getting this idea of hey, there's going to be no partiality here because there's a tendency of humans to judge upon who it is that's involved. The name that might be involved. The position of the one that might be involved. And so there's going to be a judgment on the basis and the judgment is going to be meted out as to not what is just, but as to who is involved. And we're told at least twice, God doesn't judge that way. Go to the book of James. In James chapter 5, James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Let me ask you a question about this passage. It's very clear that those who are being addressed are the rich. But it's also clear that they're living a life, he says in verse 5, a life of luxury, a life of wanton pleasure, a life wherein they have robbed those that they should have paid, cheated those that they should have given wages to, and that they have willfully and on purpose put to death righteous men. You think they read this section of James? You think they heard this section? No. I don't think that there is a single individual that's referenced in this passage that actually read this, heard this. Well, why would James write about these characters, these kind of individuals, and give a warning to them about what's coming and what's going to happen, and I know what's taking place, and I know what you've done. Why would he do that? Because of verse 7. Because who needs to hear that are those who are being taken advantage of. And they need to know, just be patient. Look at that verse again. Therefore, be patient, brethren. Verses 1 through 6, the recipients of that and the individuals that are referenced, in my opinion, they never heard that. 
But it was never meant for them. It was meant for the brethren of verse 7. They needed to know, look, God knows how you're being treated. God knows how you're being cheated. God knows how some of you have been condemned to death. God knows that. And I'm telling you, be patient, brethren. You don't have to take matters into your own hands. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. God's going to take care of them. The reason that he states this in this passage is to encourage the brethren who were suffering under the hand of these men. They needed to know that God knew what they were suffering. God will administer justice. So let me assure you, brethren, no one is getting away with anything. No one's getting away with anything. God knows. So how do I get through this? On what should I focus? Well, let me tell you, don't focus on how you are being treated. I recognize that's difficult. But you've got to learn not to focus on how you're being treated, but on treating others like you would want to be treated. Now, we know that particular passage in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12 as the golden rule. That's fine if you want to assign it a value because it is a valuable rule and gold is valuable. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and prophets. I can't be focused on how people are treating me. I recognize that I may be suffering as a result of their treatment, but we've already established the fact God knows that. God's aware of that, and God's going to take care of that. And so my focus can't be on how I'm being treated. My focus has got to be on how God wants me to treat them. My focus has got to be on how God is going to treat them, how God has treated them. I'm trying to be like my Heavenly Father. I'm trying to walk and be perfect as He is perfect, and God blesses the unjust. God sends His rain and His Son upon the just and the unjust, and so I'm trying to be like, I'm going to make my focus trying to be more like Him. We read Matthew chapter 5, 44 and 45, so let's go over to 1 Peter and let's read in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We need to think about treating others like God would treat them. We look at this passage and say, well, we need to learn to walk in the steps of Jesus. That's right. But did you notice the context of this passage? What exactly is the situation that Jesus is walking in? The situation that Jesus is walking in is a situation wherein he is being reviled. It's a situation wherein he is suffering. It's a situation in which he is being abused. And Peter says, now if you want to be like Jesus, and you want to walk in the steps of Jesus, then you'll walk as he walked. And when he was reviled, he didn't give it back. Well, you give it to me, I'm giving it to you. 
when he suffered, he uttered no threats. He was treating others like God would have treated them. That's a challenge, isn't it? Think about the passage in Romans chapter 12. At least the first part of verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Respect. That really probably is a poor translation of that word. Because if you have the English Standard Version, the English Standard Version renders that, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all men. Lo and Nita in their lexicon says it is to think about something ahead of time with the implication that one can then respond appropriately, to give attention beforehand, to have in mind to do, to have some foresight, to have a plan as to what I'm going to do, how I'm going to treat this one that I know is going to abuse me, and so I've got a plan, much like what we talked about last night in reference to Abram. It's to think ahead as to how I need to treat them when they mistreat me. Why do I need to worry about that? I'm not saying, and the reason that I say, you don't need to focus on how you're being treated and why they're treating you that way because I'm not saying that you're not being treated improperly. And I'm not trying to make light of that. I'm not suggesting that you're making it up. I'm not suggesting that you're hypochondriac. I'm not suggesting any of that. What I'm suggesting is, if all that you ever do is focused on, well, why are they treating me this way? Well, what do they have against me? Well, I don't understand why they act that way. Well, that's not right. They shouldn't act that way. I've never done anything like that to them. They did this, and they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't act that way. They shouldn't say that about me. They shouldn't treat me that way. And you know what? You're exactly right. Now, what are you going to do about it? Not a thing. There's nothing you can do. You can show them scripture. You can, you can try to uh, explain to them why that treatment is not right. But I'm telling you, you're not going to be very successful in most cases. And so when you've done that and they continue to treat you that way, you say, well, that's not right. I've shown them from scripture. I've demonstrated to them how they shouldn't be acting that way. That's not right. That's not correct. Okay, well, if you spend all your time focusing upon that, then you are focusing upon that what you, which you cannot control. And in that situation, guess what? You need to focus on what you can control. And that's your behavior. That's the only thing you can focus on. We may want someone to respond differently to our admonition and our exhortation. We may want someone to stop treating us a certain way because of, the, of, of what we have laid before them and the scriptures that we've read to them and the things that we have demonstrated to them as to, to, that shows that their, their behavior is improper. We may want all that and we may do that and it may have no impact upon them. And so I can focus so much upon that and wonder, well, I don't understand why they don't do that, why they don't respond, why are they acting that way? And if you focus on that, you're going to make yourself miserable because you're focusing upon what you can't control. You have no control of that once you have demonstrated to them the truth. The only person you can really focus on, and the only one that you really have any control of in that situation, is your behavior. How about you focus on that? Upon what should I focus? 
Well, let me suggest to you, brethren, that you don't focus on trying to please the other person. This is suggested over in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, in reference to the master and the slave relationship, Paul says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. We'll be talking about that in a minute. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Go to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. So there's a focus here that I have to make a choice about. And that is, I'm going to please him. I want to do everything that pleases him. I'm going to act in such a way that he will appreciate, that he will acknowledge, that he will see, and that he will understand. But guess what? Sometimes they don't. And what happens is, when that takes place, you just wind up getting upset because all of your efforts, all of your energies that you have been engaged in so that they would see you and that they would appreciate you. And when they don't see you and they don't appreciate you and they don't acknowledge you, then you get upset and say, well, I can't believe that they didn't see that. I can't believe they're not acknowledging that. I can't believe I didn't get that promotion. I can't believe they didn't say thank you. I can't believe all that. And what you're doing is you've just identified the fact that you have been serving to get something from them. And what you set yourself up for is to get upset. Because you are serving them to get a reaction from them. And when you didn't get that, and you didn't get that appreciation, and you got overlooked, then that made you upset. Here's what you need to focus on. And did you catch that in this text? Instead, focus on doing right. Not so that this master will see you, because there's a good chance he may see you, he may not see you, he may not appreciate what you're doing, and he may not acknowledge that, and he may not say thank you, and you may not get that promotion. And so that's why Paul says, as to Christ, there's your focus. As slaves of Christ, verse 6, Ephesians 6. As to the Lord, verse 7. The same thing in Colossians, fearing the Lord, as for the Lord. Where does Paul draw our eyes? He says, you're going to serve that master and you're going to follow him and you're going to do what he tells you to do, but you're going to do that not because you're hoping to get something from him, but you're going to do that to this master because you're serving the Lord through him. And so he draws our eyes up to, I want you to serve God. Serve God through him. And if you serve God through this man, God will not disappoint you. When you spend all your life serving through serving God through that master, that master may never say thank you. He may never be appreciative of your efforts. He may never acknowledge what you've done. But if you serve God through him and you just see that God is the end result, God will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. It's a matter of focus. Instead, focus on doing right to adorn the gospel. In Titus chapter 2, notice what the Apostle Paul said 
Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And what's the end result? What's the purpose of all that? So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. That word adorn is just what you would think it is. To decorate something. People are going to be adorning and some are already adorning their houses for the holidays that are coming up. They're going to be decorating. It's to make something beautiful. And so Paul says, when you act this way, when slaves are obedient and subject to their masters in everything, they serve with an exemplary fashion, they are not argumentative, they are not embezzling, they're not trying to get their own raised by their own ways, but they show good faith. When they act that way, even more so when they act that way toward masters who are unjust. And they still act that way. Guess what they're doing? They're making the gospel of Christ, and that which they obey, they're making that beautiful. And when they do that, it won't impact everybody, but some will be impacted. And that's why when Jesus said, when they see your good works, they will be led to glorify God. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ has been made beautiful by the actions of those who are obeying it. How are we doing at adorning the gospel? Think about 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse 1, all who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So our actions may have a direct result upon the attitude of those who see us in reference to the gospel. It may lead them to adorn it and they say, what is that? You know, you, sir, you are obedient to that man and he beats you. You are obedient to that man and he is unjust. He is unrighteous. He's crooked. He's bent. He cheats you. And yet you still obey him. You say, well, I'm not serving that man. I'm serving God through that man because that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ tells me to do. And they're going to say, well, what in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ? I need to find out about that. Or if you act just like everybody else acts. And people find out that, oh, you're a Christian? Well, you're acting and responding and reacting just like the people of the world. And they're going to speak evil of the gospel. Paul said, Timothy, make sure that you don't act in such a way that causes the gospel to be spoken against. Here's the point. Brethren, we've got to remember there's something more important than how you're being treated at stake. Our pride is not the issue here. Ours and others' relationship to God and adorning His doctrine is what is at stake. Don't focus on how you're being treated, but on doing right to receive a reward from God. Now, you may get a reward from the one that you're serving. From the employer that you're faithfully serving, you may get that bonus, and you may get that promotion, and you may not. 
But your focus isn't about that. Your focus is on doing right because ultimately your reward is going to be coming from your Heavenly Father. Isn't that what these passages state? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 8. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back, not from the Master, earthly Master, but from the Lord. Colossians 3.24 Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Jesus whom you serve. You remember in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees? Because they would put on this gaunt face when they were fasting. They would go stand in the street corners when they were praying. They would go and hand out alms in the public square so everybody could see them. And they did that to be seen by men. And Jesus said, when they are seen, they have their reward. That was their motivation. That was their reward. And therefore, there's nothing coming from the Heavenly Father. They have their reward. Think about that. They've already got their reward. So when they stand before the Heavenly Father, there's nothing that God can give them because their reason for serving had nothing to do with God. They've already got their reward. But if we serve slaves and masters and brethren and whoever it might be, if we act in a way, even in the face of being mistreated, if we act properly... And we never receive from them what we should receive. We're just waiting for our reward to come from our Heavenly Father. We're waiting like those brethren in James. And the admonition of be patient, Lord, and wait. Or be patient, brethren, and wait for the coming of the Lord. That's what we're striving to do. But that can get wearisome, can it? Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. That's doing good when we are acting as God wants us to act, doing what God wants us to do, even in the face of no proper reaction to that. Think about Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. You can go back and see that he's speaking about Jesus Christ. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have a high priest who is tempted in all points like as we yet without sin. We have a high priest who understands. We have a high priest who was reviled. We have a high priest who suffered. We have a high priest who was treated in a way that he ought not to be treated even though he wasn't treating them that way. We have a high priest like that. And so our eyes are pulled to him and we're told by the Hebrew writer, you need to look at him lest you grow weary and lose heart. I'll leave you with this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. This matter of what we read earlier in reference to the slave that is serving his master and it's a master as he is serving this master, not just the good and the gentle, but even those who are unreasonable. Now notice what he says in verse 19. For this, what? This service that you give even to unreasonable masters. 
for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Doing right regardless. Regardless of what others do. When we think about, and when I think about people of great faith, sometimes I think about elders in the Lord's church. Sometimes I think about ministers who have preached the gospel for many, many years. But sometimes I think about some people that I know in terribly difficult situations. And I have encouraged them by telling them, you are one of the strongest persons, people that I know. It's not because they're an elder in the Lord's church. It's not because they're a preacher. It's not because they're out in the public. But it's because in the face of the difficulty I know that is in their life, an unbelieving husband, a cheating husband. It's because of that and their continued faith and service in the face of such heartache, and yet they continue. said, you're the strongest person I know. Because they've learned this principle. It's difficult for us to recognize, especially when we think about... uh, it's a principle that I suppose is one that's learned with age. When we're young, we think, we've got all the time in the world. And then as we get older and we look back, wow, where did the time go? We learn how quick time passes on this earth. And so it may seem like an impossible burden to bear for some individuals, but they recognize that eternity is but a speck on the windshield Or this earth is but a speck on the windshield of eternity. And so whatever it might be difficult in your life, whatever it is that you are struggling with, my encouragement to you would be put your focus where it needs to be. You can weather the storm. You can make it through the difficulty. You can overcome the obstacle. You can bear up under the burden. And one day you'll hear said to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Doing right is possible regardless of how others may treat you. You're this morning or this evening and your life is not what it needs to be and there's something that we can do to help you make your life right. Let us know. Come forward while together we stand and while we sing. Someday you'll stand at the bar of